Well, as Rick mentioned, a couple weeks ago, we were sitting around, he was talking about himself going to the conference and the option of whether or not, you know, I wanted to preach or not. And of course, I said, sure, we'd, we'd love to, and so we could concentrate on the conference. And that's kind of where I wanted to start off today, was just talk real quick about options and choices. You know, sometimes it's hard to make a choice when you have two good options in front of you. So play along with me here for a second. Our game is like, would you rather, sometimes we do this with the the kids in their classrooms. Would you rather go on a cruise or a hiking trip in a beautiful mountain setting like that? What would you rather do? I don't know. Cruise? I'd, go, I'd do the cruise in a heartbeat. That's right. That's right. Would you rather, would you rather eat that which is like so, yes, don't you don't even need option B. <laughs> or the two of Italy from the Olive Garden. The steak. lukewarm coffee. Well, today we're going to continue studying uh, some of the writings of the Apostle John, but we're going to jump out of his gospel and we're going to get into the book of Revelation. And to be specific, we're going to look at a little letter that John slash Jesus penned to the church in Laodicea. And they're going to be called to make a choice, right? They're going to be called to choose something. And maybe you don't recall exactly what was going on in this little church in Laodicea, um, but, but you'll see what they were doing. We'll get to that, but what you'll see is they were strongly rebuked by Jesus. And, uh, and some of you might already be thinking about some of the studies that you've done before on this church of Laodicea in the past, like those lukewarm Laodiceans, or be hot, be cold, but just don't be on the fence for Jesus. So this is going to be a very interesting passage because there's a lot more to this little letter than we realize, Right? And before we go any further, let's set the stage with some cultural context. Let's look at some pictures because I think that'll help us kind of narrow into some of the key things that John is going to be writing about in this letter. So, context. What's the most important aspect of real estate? Location. You, yeah, Rod knows, of course. Location, location, location. Laodicea is located in the modern country of Turkey. And it was, it was in this triangle. This next picture, you'll see some of the archaeological discovery that they've made. They've uncovered 
see it. A lot of people in the marketplace, very, very wealthy, loaded city with money. For example, in 60 AD, those cities in that triangle, an earthquake came through and leveled all of them. I, I guess shouldn't say leveled, but destroyed a lot of damage to all those cities. And the Roman government at the time, similar to our government, ironically, said, we'll help bail you out. A lot of destruction. So you know what the way out of sin is? They went through with that. They're like, yeah, we got this. We don't have to help them. We'll take care of ourselves. They were, they were a bank of Caesar. They had their own treasury. They had a mint where they would make their own currency, their own coin. And do you know what was on each one of those coins? It was, we did it ourselves. The Laodiceans. They were known for medicine. In particular, a special eye salve that people would travel hundreds of miles to go get because this particular eye salve was supposed to cure blindness. And also, they had very rich nutrient soil that produced this beautiful wool from their, from their sheep. And it was naturally black. So they had these really fancy, nice black wool coats that they often wore. Very, very stylish. So with all this wealth and with all this, these things going on and Laodicea there, what's one thing they didn't have? Who can read? Water, right? They didn't have any water. With no fresh water sources, they had to pipe it in from surrounding cities using a, a, an elaborate layer of, of aqueducts and, pipe, and pipes just like this. Now, do you remember Heropolis, the military town? They were known for hot springs. So Laodicea, 12 miles away, would pipe in hot water to travel. Kind of imagine that trying to get back to Laodicea, but they would start in Heropolis with hot water and come on down. And you remember Colossae? They had cold water springs. So in Laodicea, they would pipe seven miles away cold water to the people in Laodicea. But guess what? By the time both of the water from both places reached Laodicea, it would no longer be hot or cold. It would be lukewarm. And with all this context, let's dig in to what Jesus speaks to in this text. He talks to a lukewarm church in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 16. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know, as we read on here in just a little bit, we'll see that the Laodicean church, they think they've got it all figured out. Look at that magnificent city. Look at those magnificent buildings. Look at our well-organized ministries. I mean, this is the type of church that would send out a publication to another church telling them how to do church. And in this letter, Jesus says, stop the presses. Christ jumps right in and he addresses this arrogant attitude head on. And he begins with a powerful description of who he is that we saw in verse 14. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the origin of God's creation. So I, I love this because the first thing that Christ does is he takes me... Mark, who happens to be preaching this message, just right off the hook, right? Don't get mad at me or the Apostle John if some of these words he's going to say hits a little too close to home because we're not the ones saying them. These are Christ's words to his church through his spirit, and he wants us to remember who he is. And 
we love the beautiful names we find in Scripture that describe our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Bread of Life, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We could do a whole sermon and just talk forever on those. And here Jesus is described as the Amen. Amen means let it be so, so be it. So he's saying, well, I'm going to say, so be it. I'm the amen. And he says he's the faithful and true witness. In Jesus, there's no deceit or falsehood. So he's saying, I'm going to speak truth here. I'm going to speak truth. And finally, the origin of God's creation. And here, you remember your Bible, if you happen to be looking at your Bible, it might say something a little different. The Greek word used for origin has been translated beginning or ruler. And in my opinion, all work. He's affirming he's the source of all creation, the power from which God the Father created the universe, and indeed he rules it as king of the universe. So what exactly is Jesus trying to express to the Laodiceans by calling himself these names? Like I said, he's about to speak truth and reveal their spiritual condition. And truth, we know, hurts sometimes. It might be a little painful for the Laodiceans, and it could be a little painful for us. But the sting of Jesus' words at some points in our lives is supposed to Move us in a direction, and we'll see that a little bit later. But for now, he lays out his credentials. He's the ruler of God's creation. And we, as Christians, and those Christians in Laodicea, claim to be his subjects, right? He is Lord, we are here. We worship him. But the problem is the ancient believers in Laodicea, they just weren't acting like it, right? And the question then becomes, will contemporary believers in Sangamon County, in this little town called Chatham, will we really be any different? So as we stated, the Laodiceans were very wealthy, successful banks. They had this wool industry and their medicine and all these other endeavors going on. They were so comfortable, they acted like they really didn't need Jesus Christ in their life. He was but an accessory to them. He was like a supplement to, to how they controlled their own destiny and and if that describes, you know, you today, if that describes your attitude that, that you really don't want Christ to control your whole life and give your all in all to Christ, that you're just kind of relying on him to keep you out of hell or to give you all the good things in life you think you deserve, then I think we better listen closely to what Christ has to say to this church in Laodicea. Because if that's your attitude, you would be lukewarm. And that's disgusting to him. And he's about to vomit you out of his mouth. And based on what we just learned about the water in Laodicea, do you think they got this picture? I mean, do you think what they understood what Jesus was trying to say? He says, you Christians in Laodicea, you're just like your water. And that would have just, they would have gasped at that description. So, so there's two ways to look at this hot and cold water situation. The first is the traditional way that it's, that it's assumed that, that hot is good and cold would be bad. But there might be a little problem with that because while it's true that Jesus was saying, I wish you were either, because if that was true, Jesus is saying, I wish you were either really good or I wish you were either really bad. And some might argue that Jesus would never want people in his church to be really, really bad. So if it doesn't represent Hot meaning good and cold meaning bad. You know, what would it represent? Well, the other alternative is this. Hot water is what? Useful. I mean, we saw that picture of the hot cup of coffee. We 
useful for that. It's useful for my shower. I hate cold showers, so a hot shower is useful there. I remember back when I was a kid, some, I don't know if they have these anymore, but my mom had a hot water bottle, and so she would put hot water in the bottle and put it on my stomach or whatever and feel okay, feel good, make my stomach calm down a little bit. So hot water, obviously, we know is useful, and cold water is useful. I remember times, you might too, before they had fridges and garages and bottled water and all that good stuff, when you're outside playing with your friends in the summer and you're super hot and sweaty, so you take a little break and you run over to that hose on the skillet right, and you want that drink, and, uh, but you don't want to have to go inside to get it, so, so, so you wanted that cold, refreshing drink of water and you go to the hose, but you always had to be at least second in line, right? Because if you're in a rush and you got there first and you put that hose up to your mouth, before it flushes out, what happens? Yeah, you get that hot, plastic, hose-tasting water that's been baking in the sun all day in your mouth when you're expecting that cold water. And what's your only response? Blah! You got to spit it out, right? You got to let that hose run a little bit and get cold before you take a drink. And that's what Jesus, I think, is saying here to the church at Laodicea. Hot water, it's useful. Cold water, it's useful. You guys, blah! There's no use for you. Be hot coffee. Be iced coffee. But just don't be that gross, lukewarm coffee with that weird film on top (laughs) that Chuck likes to drink, I guess. That's a hard message to hear because we, too, make up a a church in a very wealthy society with water issues of our own here in Chatham. And it's even harder because the question is not how how do I apply this to the Methodist church down the road or the Catholic church or the guy over there in the back row of this church or even this church. Really, the question is directed at you and it's directed at me. And it's directed at my attitude and your attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You know, the one redeeming quality from this church in Laodicea is they show us examples of what to do to be absolutely useless and repulsive to Jesus Christ. So we're going to go through them, not so you'll walk in them, obviously, but so that if this describes you, you can honestly determine if you too are lukewarm and ready for some changes to become useful for Jesus. So we don't want the Lord to vomit us out of his mouth, right? We don't want our behavior to make him sick in his stomach. So why is he vomiting out these Christians anyway? Well, as we read on, we'll see that Laodiceans were a self-deceived church. Let's look at some more of this passage. Verses 17 and 18. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to apply to your eyes that you may see. I see a lot of pride here. It comes down to pride. The Laodicean Jesus followers were saying, I'm rich. Look what we've done. Look what we've got. Look what we've accomplished. 
We've got millions of dollars, medicine, great-looking clothes, and guess what? We did it ourselves, just like our coins say. And apparently, Laodicea was the birthplace of the ancient prosperity gospel. <laughs> I'm rich. I've prospered. Just look at how much God is blessing me. Who needs Jesus when you're this comfortable? That should hit home to some of us in the American church in a broad sense, just going through the motions today? It's a good question when we live in a comfortable society, isn't it? And, and Jesus addressed this very issue in a story we call the parable of the rich fool. In Luke 12, 16, we begin reading. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began thinking to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and my goods there. And I will say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is demanded of you. And as for all that you have prepared, who will own it now? Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in relation to God. And I don't think we really need to comment much on that. Here's the gut check. Next time you have a major decision to make, ask yourself, am I doing this because it's God's will or am I making this decision because in the long run, it's a decision that's going to benefit me the most. Remember, when Jesus called his disciples, he told them, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And today, sadly, it's been twisted to become a Christian so you can be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And that's just not true. That's the path towards useless Christianity. And Jesus' response to their pride, as we read in the context of their culture, was, you think so? Well, let me tell you, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You might feel fancy in those slick black wool coats you make, but you're naked. And remember that medicine you're known for? This magic eye salve? It's ironic because Laodiceans, you're blind. It's the same trap that some of us today, Christians today, fall into in our culture. The, the U.S. dollar, as you know, says what? In God we trust. Yet money is typically the one God people tend to trust in more than God himself. We could make the same claim as the Laodicean church, we're very rich. We did it ourselves. Let me give you this quote, and you try and guess who it might be from. A lot of times, I think, I get very frustrated and introverted. And there's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have you know, all that I've accomplished? What if I have and think there's still something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is it. This is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Then who said that? Tom Brady, right after he won his third Super Bowl. This is Laodicea. Accomplishments, tremendous accomplishments. Everything at their fingertips, yet Jesus is far from Lord of their life, and this could potentially trap you and me as well. So as I mentioned earlier in the passage, this should all make us really 
step back and just examine ourselves and ask some questions like right now in your life what are you chasing after what what are you chasing after is it worth it is it out of my desire to serve christ for his kingdom for his glory or am i chasing after something so i can have more for myself i mean really what we're talking about at the root of Laodicea and for us in some cases is this unwillingness to sacrifice. A lukewarm Christian is someone who makes Jesus a hobby and not their life's work. Many like the fact that Jesus sacrificed his life for ours, yet we dare not return the favor. Following Jesus must be done his way. He should be driving our car, not in our passenger seat, just along for the ride. And Jesus is pointing out these fundamental realities to the church here in Laodicea. I love verse 18. Jesus is saying, if we look at there, he's saying, I have so much more for you. Take my gold, gold refined in the fire, gold that's actually worth something. Gold, not gall, gold that will offer you the security you long for rather than this silly currency that you've developed for yourself. Take my gold. He says, you're rich. Be rich in me. He's the source of everything. He says right there, take my white robes to cover your nakedness and your shame. Regarding your blindness, he says, I am the real healing salve. I'm the one who can help you see what you truly need. And this is what we all need. We just need Jesus. We need Christ 100% in our lives. He's addressing and he's going after the things in this church that they've trusted in more than God. Their wealth, their stuff. And Jesus will always be after the things you have in your life that, that sit on the throne of our heart other than him. Where we're unwilling to sacrifice in those areas is broadcasting a message where we don't feel like we need God. So maybe for some it's money. We trust our God for salvation, but struggle to live generously or to tithe. Maybe for some it's attitudes like bitterness. Maybe you're a bitter person sometimes and you just don't want to be graceful like our Lord. You want to trust in your ability to get vengeance more. Maybe it's your time. I mean, maybe you appreciate how Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross, but you're just not sure how much of your time you want to prioritize with God. You know, whatever it is, one glaring application that you should really walk out these doors with is this, is that God won't settle for anything less than being the top priority of our life. He wants us to be actively pursuing him, not as a hobby, but as a way of life. And when we do so, we'll see the love of Christ just kind of shining through, obviously. So let's move on to Jesus' love in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus, out of love, he says, is rebuking and disciplining, disciplining this church in Laodicea. So what? 
For what purpose? So that they will repent earnestly with their whole heart and turn from their lukewarmness. You know, we feel pretty comfortable with discipline and rebuke in certain situations, don't we? Like coaches, teachers, parents. Not necessarily my parents, I didn't like, but other parents can discipline. That's fine. We applaud coaches with a well-disciplined team, right? Good job. And if they lose, we say, ah, they lack discipline. We want a teacher in the classroom to have control over the classroom, to have discipline. But God, not God, right? We don't want him to discipline us. He's loving. He's kind. He's not a disciplinarian, right? But God indeed is love, and that's exactly why he disciplines those he loves. The most unloving thing a God could do would not rebuke or discipline me and you and us and continue to let us go down this path that's going to hurt us, this path of sin, to be careless about our sin and not care if we cause ourselves and others pain. That would be an unloving God. And that's why he's rebuking and disciplining Laodicea, the church in Laodicea. And at different times, you and me in our lives. So that what? Change is going to happen. So there's growth that needs to place, take place in our walk with Jesus. It's really, if you get in that rut of lukewarm behavior, I mean, it's really the only way out. Because being lukewarm might be comfortable. But God steps in and says, no, he's going to discipline and rebuke us. It leads to true repentance. Now, please understand that discipline and rebuke, it's not the same as rejection or being hostile to us or hostility. It's an opportunity to experience the love of God. It's really a beautiful thing. It won't feel like it when we're experiencing discipline, but it's part of his character. It's part of his way that he interacts with his creation as evidenced from the very beginning. And we had a great discussion on that last Wednesday night in Bible study. Because... We, we, we went all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, right? Deuteronomy. And we looked at how God laid out his instructions for Israel. And we looked at him very clearly saying, hey, follow these instructions and you will be blessed. Blessings will come. Don't follow them and what's going to happen? Curses, discipline will happen. Very beginning of the Bible. God saying, this is how I'm going to interact with you. Now we jump to Revelation, last book of the Bible. And what do we see? Jesus saying, I love you, therefore I rebuke and I discipline you. It's ultimately to bring about restoration and repentance, right? Jesus here is disciplining his church out of love, out of love to correct our paths and draw us closer to him. Now, when we, we, when we repent due to this discipline, the reward is Jesus himself. As we read this, this part of the, the passage here that we all know, the Nikons, he's knocking at the door. Right? Again, a beautiful reference to what's going on culturally in Laodicea. See, a lot of people from that military town of Heropolis, remember that on the map of the triangle? They would venture down to Laodicea, obviously, Roman soldiers and such, because it was such a wealthy city. And there was a series of laws outlining acceptable behavior between a Roman soldier and civilians. For example, a soldier could demand a civilian carry his backpack for up to a thousand paces, and failure to do so was not recommended. Also, Roman soldiers at any moment could knock at your door, and they could demand a meal, demand you give them food, demand that you do anything for them, really, 
but they would just kind of bust in and take your food and hit the road. And Jesus is playing on that fear. Can you see it? He's saying, I'll knock on the door, but I'm not going to barge in. I'm not going to force myself on you. I will not demand something from you if you don't want to give it. I'll wait. But if you let me in, we will eat together. We'll dine together leisurely, together in my presence. See, when we listen to discipline, fellowship with Jesus is the reward. And that's a beautiful reward. What a, what a sad state of affairs the Laodiceans find themselves in here. I mean, remember, this is addressed to the church. The Jesus standing on the, at the door and knocking, sometimes people use that evangelistically, right? To a non, but that's really not the context here, is it? This is addressed to the church, to Christians, and Jesus wasn't among them. He was outside knocking. It would be like, hey, if you want to find Jesus, you're going to have to go look for him in the parking lot because they kicked him out and shut the door, you know? <laughs> with, the, with their focus on material things and their pride, Jesus and, and how he wants to mold us into his very image just got pushed right out of the church. It became a social club, a political entity, a place where people hang out to sing or hang out to complain. I don't know, but it wasn't centered on Jesus. And Jesus said, I want your all in all. And they said, no way. Pushed him right out. So the real question is, why hasn't he left altogether? Why is he outside knocking? Why is he still offering them a seat at the table? What's that a picture of? grace. Christ has every right to put an end to this charade, but instead he says, I love you. I'm giving you a chance. Let me in before it's too late. A final thought here as we conclude. Jesus ends with this beautiful picture of rewards should we be useful, hot or cold, just not lukewarm. In this case, it's a picture of sitting with him, with Jesus on his throne. Can you imagine that? That's a pretty neat picture. If we can overcome similar bad attitudes that plagued the Laodiceans, if we humble ourselves, repent, live for Christ, surrender to him, then there's a great promise in store for us. And, and this letter has both barrels locked and loaded on backslidden Christians. So if that describes any of us here, then we need to recenter our life around the fact that Christ loves you and he died to save you. He's a good master. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You need to trust him to save you or he will judge you. But being a Christian doesn't end at the moment we confess he's Lord. We know that that's where it begins. And if you're a Christian, it means you're a child of God and Christ's message to these Laodiceans and Christ's message to Christians in the United States and Christ's message to Christians here in our church. It's the same, right? It's the same. It's live like it. Just go live like it. So with that in mind, we're going to take some time to examine our heart during communion.
It's a time to surrender all to Christ. Let's not be lukewarm Christians. Christ doesn't want that. And I know you don't want that either. And communion is the perfect time to be honest with our Lord. If lukewarmness has crept in, then just humble yourself. That's all you have to do. Just humble yourself. Repent. Christ is coming soon. And let's be sure he finds us ready. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Take my life and let it be. Hymn 596.